1: I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's the primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm your host Clara Cook, and joining me is my co-host Duncan Barrett. Hello, Duncan.
0: Hi, good to talk to you, Clara. How are you?
1: I'm good. I'm good. I want to emphasise again, we've chosen a very grim subject.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, you, you know how how we love it here on Primitive Culture. We're always going for the cheerful, happy topics.
1: <laughs> That's how we roll. <laughs> um, so, first of all, I just want to give a small warning to everyone who's listening that this is actually quite a distressing topic and it's of a very adult nature. So if you are listening to it in the car while driving your kids to school, this is an appropriate subject for them to hear. Uh, if you're you know, cooking dinner with your kids in the background, I would perhaps save this podcast for a time in which there aren't young ears um, in the room. So, And Duncan, you're going to start us off by telling the listeners a little bit about why we chose this topic and how it came about to learning about it.
0: Yeah. I mean, basically this this topic, it's been a very interesting one for me. I don't know about you because this is something that I literally, you know, not only did I not really know anything about, which is something that we, we deal with now and then on Primitive Culture, generally when a guest brings a topic to us, but I literally had never heard of this. And it was, w- what happened was I was um, reading through my Deep Space Nine companion uh, a few weeks ago uh, because I was preparing to go on the Trek Profiles podcast and the Past Tense, uh, which is one of my favourite DS Nine episodes is one of the episodes I was thinking of talking about on there. So I thought I'd read through some of the background to it. And I I sort of always knew that past tense had been inspired by the kind of contemporary homeless situation in Los Angeles and so on. But actually the the story that is in the companion that Robert Hewitt-Wolf and Ira Stephen Bear talk about is how kind of the the thing that kind of allowed them to crack that episode was actually something quite different, something very specific, a historical incident that was very specific. Basically what had happened was Robert Hewitt-Wolf had started off um, trying to do a version of that episode um, uh, which was about the kind of contemporary homelessness problem and had Cisco back in time in the 1990s. So it wouldn't have been set in the kind of near future. It would have actually been set in the present. And the idea was essentially what came to be kind of retooled as Far Beyond the Stars, that Cisco is there. He's mistaken for a kind of homeless person with uh, mental health issues. He's, it says, um, I wanted Cisco to be saying, I'm the captain of a star base in the year 23, whatever, and I don't belong here, says Wolf. And everyone's telling him you're a homeless schizophrenic, take your Thorazine. But that never quite worked. Um, So they were kind of kicking around this story idea, how to do this kind of homeless story, how to do this kind of contemporary thing. And then it was Ira Stephen Bear, who said, I was driving home one evening, and I suddenly thought Attica. And that was his kind of key to breaking into this story and to making it work. And Attica... you and I know now, though we didn't a few uh, weeks ago, was a very famous prison rebellion in the United States. So basically, it was the inspiration for the kind of hostage-taking element of that story and for this idea of kind of this environment, which is very restrictive and cruel and and kind of treating its inhabitants poorly. And that kind of act of rebellion that uh, creates a kind of crisis and how that, that may or may not have, you know, in the case of past tense, ultimately positive results. In the case of Attica, as you you sort of warned our listeners, um, somewhat more horrific results really in the way that it all played out. Um, But so this has been absolutely fascinating for me going into a topic, uh, a historical topic that I really knew nothing about whatsoever and and learning a little bit more about it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I had no idea that Attica existed or that there was an uprising there. And it's actually funny because it, it did take place in New York State and New York State is where my mother's family come from and some of the troopers that retook the prison were actually from the same town that my mother comes from. And, uh, you know, Rochester isn't that far from Attica. And so the two communities are connected. So it was a bit horrifying to hear that this terrible, terrible, disastrous um, event took place in, you know, an area not that far from where my family come from. But it's a com, but from a completely dim, different demographic. My parents, well, my mom grew up in a very sort of white, you know, working, working class, middle class neighborhood of, of, of Rochester. And the people who were imprisoned in Attica were primarily uh, African American and Hispanic. Uh, of course, there were white prisoners, obviously, in the, in, in the prison as well. But Attica really is a story of systematic and I would say, um, structural racism, really, as well as, the mistreatment of prisoners and there is an element in past tense one and two that is also about racism they it's it's i think i don't think it's an accident that cisco and Bashir are the ones who are put in sanctuary and judzia is the one who you know can pass for like an upper class human in san francisco and it's because she's white with really, her so.
0: with her kind of trendy gap year tattoos and yeah know, and everything yeah no absolutely and, and mean, her weird hairstyle <laughs> Yeah, and her weird hairstyle. There's, um, there's a quote again from Iris Stephen Bear. He says, uh, the simple fact is that a beautiful white woman is always going to get much better treatment than two brown-skinned men. That's the reality of life. And I think you're right. That is obviously there kind of in the subtext of the episode. It's never, It never quite makes its way to the surface in the way that, say, in later DS9, I mean, certainly saying something like Far Beyond the Stars, the kind of race element is very much in the foreground. But it's definitely there as a kind of undercurrent going through the story. And um, there's that very interesting scene where they're kind of looking for a spokesperson. And f- first of all, it, so there's, there's three possibilities, I suppose, of so the guy with the hat who's the kind of slightly terrifying, uh, you know, the, the kind of most alarming kind of hostage taker. Sisko in the persona of Gabriel Bell, who, as we know, is this kind of historic hero, this person who's the kind of noble um, uh, you, you, you know the great sort of historic figure in this storyline that's being told in past tense and then there's this guy who's an out of work I can't remember what, what he is some kind of engineer or something but he's a kind of down on his luck uh, but sort of hard-working family man basically and Cisco says you know it has to be him he's got the face uh, and you know there's definitely a kind of element in the subtext there of you know we need to put the white guy on the screen we need to put this kind of um, you know the sort of middle-aged white family guy because that's who's going to appeal to the people outside, that's who's going to gain their sympathy. Uh, and, you know, again, without ever being too explicit about it, the show past tense definitely has that kind of subtext or that kind of undercurrent running through it of the fact that, you know, it's not just any old Starfleet officers who've got caught up in this, it is specifically Cisco and Bashir. And I think that's one of the things that makes the episode so interesting.
1: Yeah, and, and there was an element of that in the Attica prison uprising as well, like which prisoners were chosen to speak for uh for, for the prisoners um which people were chosen to speak as moderators as as objective observers it was there was a lot of like a, a lot of it was about appearances and, mm-hmm. and a lot of it was also about assumptions about people and reputation um sometimes in not in a good way as well like Certain prisoners had reputations as being more politically uh, aware and more politically motivated, and that didn't work very well with the state. You know, the state doesn't want, they didn't necessarily take their concerns seriously because they thought Mm -hmm. they were just, you know, drumming up political support and making trouble and everything. But before we go on to talk any more about the episodes, I think. I should give a little bit of a context about what the uprising was and how mm-hmm. it happened, and what the fallout from it was, just for the our listeners who pe- perhaps are like us they are British and they may not have ever heard of it, or people who perhaps maybe didn't live through the uprising one alive in nineteen seventy one so the- or even
0: may have um You you know, maybe familiar with it, but hadn't made the connection between it and this DS9 episode, because I don't think necessarily you would, because on the face of it, it does seem to be an episode which is very much concerned with homelessness and unemployment. And obviously those are, you know, this is not to say that Attica is the only kind of influence on this story. Obviously, all of those social issues of the time are in there as well but at the same time the fact that iris Stephen Baer said this was the key really to unlocking this storyline means it it clearly plays a very important part and obviously we'll talk a bit about some of those parallels but it may be one of those things as often comes out of our episodes where someone listens and says oh my god i'd never realized that before that makes perfect sense but i never i never saw that connection there before
1: which is Kind of why we're here, man. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's right. Yeah. That's, that, that's our, our mission. <laughs> we've done our job. If that's the well. reaction we get, then we, then we know we've done our job. Yeah.
1: So if anyone's interested in actually learning a lot more about the Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and they want a very good, in-depth historical account of it, I would urge you to read the book Blood in the Water, which is written by Heather Ann Thompson, who's a history professor. And it was published in 2016 and won the Pulitzer Prize for History in 2017 it's it covers the the actual uprising and then all the events that follow it and then basically legal battles that went on for 20 25 years after the uprising so it's a huge book i only really managed i must say to get halfway through it and it was Mm -hmm. actually such a distressing book to read that That was one of the reasons why I only managed to get halfway through it. I do want to finish it, but it was an emotionally difficult book to read because it had a very sort of clear and detailed account of the human rights abuses that took place in the prison, which are probably worse than you could ever imagine. Unless you yourself have been in prison in America, then you might have some idea. Um,
0: Absolutely, I, I started to feel bad that I'd even asked you to research this topic. To be honest, when I got to that part <laughs> of the, because I kind of, I think I kind of imagined, you know, uh, and I mean to put it in context, obviously past tense. Many people think past tense is a sort of, you know, about as bleak as Star Trek gets in some ways, but past tense comes to seem positively kind of optimistic and and rosy when you look into the kind of real history of of what happened at Attica. And particularly, you know, yes, the kind of conditions that there were uh, initially that kind of um, generated the uprising in the first place, you know, the kind of exploitation and the poor treatment, the prisoners and so on, which obviously has kind of echoes in some ways in the way that people are treated in the uh, sanctuary districts in past tense. But then the bit that really shocked me was when the uh, troops come in to retake the prison, the level of brutality and just absolutely unspeakable behaviour that goes on. I mean, it is like, uh, it is essentially a massacre. They went in and massacred them. You know, there were... Totally cold blooded executions, torture effectively, you know, acts of appalling cruelty, totally um, beyond anything that was considered necessary. You know, after they already had regained control of the prison, they were basically just killing people in cold blood. And a lot of that had a very strong racial element to it. These were white police going in and kind of getting revenge in a way on these predominantly black prisoners. And certainly when I got to that part of the book, I was. It just, you know, horrified, but also kind of astounded because these, the kind of stories, they're what you expect to read, you know, like a massacre in, in, in war that you might get from the Vietnam War or something, you know, horrific war crimes. They would be in that context. Um, and this is, you know, on domestic soil, uh, in America, you know, almost within our lifetimes. I mean, certainly within the lifetimes of many of our listeners, you know, this was in the 1970s and the, just the level of, uh, appalling, unspeakable behaviour is, you know, is really shocking. And obviously, that doesn't, that doesn't have an analogue in past tense, I don't think. I mean, yes, some people get shot kind of, but almost sort of more in the crossfire. And maybe you get a sense that the police are a bit gung-ho going in and so on. But it's not, there, there certainly isn't this level of absolute, you, you know, appalling brutality that there was in the case of the Attica uprising.
1: Yeah, definitely past tense does seem rather tame compared to the actual real History of the uprising. I think also though, there is, there are some links and we'll talk about that, especially the way in which, um, people are represented in terms of the, the names that they're given, the, the roles that they are assigned. And also, especially also the narrative that is written after an event or uh, written about a group of people, you know? So one of the things that really shocked me, I mean, the Attica uprising, the, the book, Blood and the Water, it, it's, it is, uh, a pretty disastrous situation from beginning to finish at the the conditions in the prison before the uprising were truly truly horrendous the kind of conditions that uh, would i would you know that would be against people's human rights. They're definitely human rights abuses. Uh, there was, like you said, systematic racism. Uh, one of the things that really, really concerned me was the lack of medical care, the fact that there were only a few doctors, like one or two, the fact that the doctors themselves didn't ever touch the patients, were not concerned about the patients. Uh, you know, there was, there was like drug testing on the actual... Well, not drug testings, it was a virus testing, wasn't it? They? They, gave, they gave some of the prisoners viruses to test on them. So there were actually, it was like human testing um, in the actual prison, medical testing. And, you know, there were people living with injuries, you know, like a man would come to the doctor with a broken hand and the doctor wouldn't do anything, you know. And so a man would walk, up, walk away with a broken hand and in agony, you know. And there were people spending many, many years in solitary. There was routine bad treatment. The parole system was, it's discriminative and complicated parole system that made no sense. So no one understood how they could be paroled. There was no drug rehabilitation. A lot of people in the prison spoke Spanish and there were, there was no Spanish books. There were no Spanish guards. There was no one, there were no interpreters. So the people they who didn't received- speak English.
0: If they received letters from their loved ones written in Spanish, they would go straight in the bin because they were supposed to be censoring letters coming in and any letters that came in in Spanish because none of the guards could speak it automatically were not allowed to get through. So they were literally, you know, cut off even from anyone outside the prison who they, they you know, their relatives or their friends or whatever, who they might have any kind of contact with. No, Yeah, no books in Spanish, no newspapers, etc. And, and also, I mean, you know, terrible exploitation, really. I mean, they were paid... Um, something like as little as six cents a day for the work that they were being forced to do. And at the same time, the commissary where they could get, you know, get things in the prison, like the shop within the prison, was wildly overpriced. So they were kind of totally sort of priced out of of, of anything. I mean, they were almost being treated like slaves, I suppose, these prisoners. And yes, they were prisoners. And, you know, yes, they committed crimes and so on. But I think one of the things that comes out uh, in the book Blood in the Water is there was a kind of assumption that, all these men were real, you know, hardened criminals. They were all kind of murderers and rapists and so on. And in fact, that wasn't necessarily the case. You know, some of the people had ended up there for quite minor crimes one way or another, because they they may have committed a parole violation when they'd been paroled, you know, having committed a fairly minor crime and originally been sent to a different prison. They ended up in Attica, which was, I think, was a like a maximum security prison. But it it was by no means the case that everyone there had committed some horrific, heinous crime. And yet everyone was treated appallingly badly. You know, they had one sheet of toilet paper per day. Uh, they, they had one shower a week. You know, just really kind of, if you imagine the the worst kind of Grim, unforgiving kind of prison environment. That's that's kind of what it was. And in some ways, it's it's no surprise that that resentment built up to the point where you know where there was an opportunity for rebellion. Uh, the prisoners took it, hoping. And actually, throughout the rebellion, you know, it, it wasn't just some kind of violent you know expression of rage. There were very clear you know there were manifestos. There were lists of of what they were asking for. They were kind of they were quite clear about. Uh, I mean, within the context of there being debate and some people saying one thing and some saying another and so on. But, you know, there were kind of political goals that they were working towards and they were trying to kind of draw attention to a certain, to these kind of social ills, just as we see in past tense, you know, the, the bell riots in past tense are, you know, not just an expression of rage, though obviously you see that with the, the, you know, the guy with the hat and the gun and so on, who, who is basically just angry and wants to hurt people. But, you know, for most of the, um, people in that sanctuary district, it is an opportunity to try and get the attention of the outside world and say, look, this, these conditions that we're living in are not acceptable and we need to change them. And these are the things, you know, these are the sort of realistic, uh, things that, that we want if we're going to end this, um, situation peacefully
1: yeah so the actual uprising was quite accidental really the the there'd been other uprisings in prisons in New York State and so a lot of those prisoners who had been in those prisons were moved to Attica so Attica was actually overcrowded at the time and a lot of the situations a lot lot of the things that were wrong with Attica had actually been flagged up to the prison administration and the state authorities repeatedly including actually by some of the prison guards and the prison guards themselves were poorly educated often they they were actually not trained really on how to be prison guards often you were put in in charge of a whole of like 50 men with just like like a whistle and a truncheon and you were just kind of sent off and that was it like they weren't they weren't actually given much training and they weren't taught how to diffuse situations or anything so one of the things that you you actually learn when reading this book is that this was a powder keg that was just like about was basically going to go off but there's been many warnings repeatedly given to officials and the governor repeatedly again and again and again. And, you know, and the sort of head of the prison because people were flagging up problems all the time. And the, you know, a lot of the sort of, uh, at the time, the political agenda was against civil rights and um, the civil rights movement. It was a very right wing administration, which I would say was actually racist. And, and so, It wasn't in the administration's interests to improve prisons or improve the conditions of Attica. So I actually think that a huge percentage of the blame of what happened um, in the uprising and the aftermath lies with the, the state and the administration. And afterwards, you do see that, I think this is what really got me halfway through the book, was how awful the actual retaking of the prison was. There was so much that went on after that. even... Days after the prison had been retaken, people were still being shot. And even, and like literally hours after the retaking of the prison, none of the local hospitals knew that they should be prepared for casualties on a wide scale. Like the, The actual state troopers and the prison guards and the police, like, no one had bothered to warn all the local hospitals. No one had bothered to get, um, you know, reserves of of blood or plasma. No one had bothered to call doctors in, you know, so there were people who were severely, severely injured who didn't receive the medical treatment they should receive. You do see that in past tense too. You see, you know, the aftermath of the uprising with basically bodies in the streets. So like they do give an indication of that, but the thing that, that, I mean, that was bad. But then right after that, lies about the uprising started being told by officials. Officials actually started telling complete and utter fictional narratives about what had happened to the press and to other officials, to the point where even the president at the time, Nixon, was spouting these lies as if they were truth. And to the point where even mainstream Reputable, reliable newspapers like the New York Times and the Washington Post were publishing these complete fictions on their front pages, and the main fiction, the main story, really, the main lie, was that some of the hostages had had their throat cut, throats cut by prisoners, but none of the hostages had had their throat throats cut by prisoners. Most of the hostages who had died, and there was a considerable number of them, had died because they'd been shot by state troopers who were all armed with guns that you would normally use when you're hunting deer. You I mean, you wouldn't use these kinds of guns to, to, to arrest human beings or to, to wound a human being so they, they let go of a hostage. You know, I mean, some of the actual weapons that were used in the, in, in the retaking of the prison were, the kind of things that you use if you really want to do serious, serious damage to the human body, which is what they'd wanted to do. So, and they think- were, and
0: they were not official police weapons. I mean, that's the other no. thing is I think a lot of the troopers and a lot of the troopers were not even exactly assigned to the job. They kind of turned up and wanted to chip it, they almost sort of volunteered for it, because there was this, this, this sense that it was a kind of righteous thing to go and retake the prison, you, you know, and there was definitely this kind of racial element to it. And they brought their own guns from home, you know, not their kind of police issue guns. So there was almost, you know, it was essentially a kind of armed mob going in there. And unsurprisingly, yeah, large numbers of people were killed. I mean, 29 prisoners were killed and nine of the hostages were killed. And yeah, as you say, almost immediately, the, the narrative that started coming out was this complete fiction that the prisoners had killed the hostages, uh, when in fact, that, that absolutely wasn't the case. And I suppose that's one area where the real story of Attica is much darker in a way than the story of Past Tense, because in Past Tense, there's this sense of, yes, this is an awful situation. Yes, this is a a dangerous moment and people are going to die and and in the first episode I think Bashir is sort of saying you know it's terrible knowing that all these people are going to die and we can't do anything to stop it but the kind of silver lining in a sense is the fact that the truth will come out and the sanctuaries will be closed down and you know real change will come out of it because Uh, you know, they will get the word out. There, There isn't that sense. Whereas, you know, with the Attica situation, almost immediately it becomes a case of, you know, one person's word against another. And, And even then when they begin going to try and prosecute supposed, you know, ringleaders and so on of the uprising... And again, the the investigators are very much not really looking for the truth. You know, they decide who they want to pin things on. The whole process of supposed investigation to bring those people to trial was completely corrupt, you, you know, uh, showing someone a, a picture of someone and telling them what the name was and then asking them to ID it, for example. So you've already told them what the answer is that you're looking for. I mean, that's sort of at the most minor level, you know, offering to bribe prisoners by giving them early release, threatening them with beatings and, you, you know, in many cases, beating prisoners to to get them to to cooperate. You know, so many people were testifying uh, under duress. The whole kind of legal procedure that followed the uprising was a complete sham, essentially. And again, just built on this kind of um, bedrock of, of of lies and just this idea that you know the people in charge, the people, you know, the the kind of state forces and so on, can uh, dictate the truth. And as you say, the newspapers will go along with that version of events, even if it turns out to be you know nothing but a lie.
1: Well, it does make you think about what you're reading in the newspapers now, doesn't it? I mean, it does. I I mean, I've always trusted, I would say, reputable press, like people I know that do actual fact checking. But after -hmm. reading this, I was like, well, you know, how much should I really believe? I mean, the thing is that the news has to be reported very quickly, doesn't it? And so Mm -hmm. they're they're looking for the best story and the, the quickest story that they can get. And sometimes the true facts coming out of an event like this often kind of come to light perhaps later and so what you're ending up with is a knee-jerk, knee-jerk news story which actually doesn't have the correct facts in it or has actual in- actually inaccurate information in it one of the things i would say that was interesting though that does actually connect with past tense is that there is moments in past tense too, the second episode where there is rumors about the fact that the hostages might have been killed and that is kind of connected to the sort of rumours about, and there were rumours actually flying around during the uprising outside in the local towns that prisoners were going to get free and they were going to threaten local residents. There were rumours that the hostages were actually being tortured when none of that was the case. The hostages were actually being given medical treatment by the prisoners. They were being fed by the prisoners. They were being protected by the prisoners. So mm. they were actually, I, I mean, being treated as well as they could be in as those we circumstances.
0: See, as we see in past tense with Bashir you know offering medical help to the hostages that, that they're dealing with I mean of course Bashir would do that he's a Starfleet doctor and so on but you know again that's that's sort of part of what's going on uh within that building is is you know him doing his best to to care for people and using his skills as a doctor to help rather than to kind of make things worse
1: yeah exactly exactly and and the fact that they towards the end they're talking about sport you know in mm-hmm. in, in, in the episode and they're Kind of they they're finding a common ground there there's a little bit of banter there. I felt like the the characters in past tense were very multi dimensional mm-hmm. and very well written you know they aren't completely all bad and they aren't completely all good and they're they're these little people caught up in this system, which is intrinsically unfair um to a whole g- massive group of people. As all the people living in sanctuary, or all the people without jobs, or the people who um you know all the people who have mental illness that kind of thing, or are homeless, and the actual guards and the administrators, the hostages they they were capable of empathy, yeah, you know, and they uh, but it's like because of the daily grind of working in this system, they were just trying to get through it, and they'd kind of lost maybe some of the perspective of the people that they were sort of processing through mm-hmm. Sanctuary and through the uprising they gained more of a perspective and they sort of t- t- like tuned into their empathy and mm-hmm. by the end of it they really do see that this is a terrible system and that actually they shouldn't be working in it anymore and if possible try and change it it's, it just shows how hard won utopia is
0: yeah. But it's very interesting as well. You know, it's not, you know, this is not kind of Stockholm syndrome. It's not, um, that they're kind of, and it, and it's not also making a connection with your hostage taker to try and let them see you as a human being. It's not all that kind of strategic stuff that we normally associate with hostage dramas. It is, you know, it is genuine. And I think you're right. The, the, the sort of, um, you know, more minor characters in these, Stories are very well written and very well kind of crafted. I mean, for example, the woman who is the administrator in that centre is a very interesting character, I think. And, you know, she is a decent woman. And she, you know, she tells this story of how she once tried to help someone who was in a desperate situation and kind of bent the rules for them. And then she got found out and she almost lost her job. And she said, basically, you know, I sort of decided from then on, I'm going to have to play by the rules and kind of keep my head down. But, you know, she knows that it's an unjust system that she's working in. She doesn't feel that she can do anything about it you know then you've got the kind of crusty old guard who's who's just really is quite indifferent to it and in some ways i think it's interesting he he is actually the one person in the whole story that gets the brunt of cisco's real anger about this whole situation and and kind of historical anger you know we know that because um, of course in past tense Bashir is very naive about all this he doesn't really know this bit of history Cisco is very steeped in it and we know that Cisco is someone who reads his history and particularly kind of the history of oppression and the history of kind of social movements and so on it's something that he's very interested in and the thing that although he's been sort of explaining to Bashir you know it's not that they don't care they, they will learn to care again it's kind of you, you, you know it, 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 trying to sort of explain things to him the thing he can't really get his head around is that guy. And he says to him, you know, you see these people every day, but you don't seem to understand what they're going through. You know, how, how can that be? And he's, he's, he's really angry with him, you know, and it I suppose it's because what there is, is this just complete breakdown of empathy or compassion. And really, you know, these are the kind of core values of Star Trek in some way, you know, compassion for people in a, a different situation to yourself or, or a different, you, you know, from a different background or a different place or a different planet or whatever. And, and what it is, is this kind of total failure that seems to be happening on a kind of societal level to feel genuine compassion for these people and to, and to want to help them rather than just kind of lock them up and, and pretend they don't exist anymore.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think that in past tense one and two, they clearly show the, the sort of bureaucracy of oppression, I feel. Like, so these people aren't just different because they're living in sanctuary. They're actually classed as different because they have... ID that they have to carry. They have ration cards. You know, they're that they're, they're recorded on, on computers. I mean, even to the point actually where a Jadzia has to have some sort of ID on her, and you sort of feel like if she doesn't, she's going to end up in sanctuary too. And that's that's basically the reason why Bashir and Cisco, I mean, end up in sanctuary. I know this is like a race element, but there is. This idea that you have to sort of have an identity, you have to be a person, and if you don't exist Mm -hmm. as a person, then you're a non-person, and people's individual identities are eroded by numbering them, by fingerprinting them, and I think that actually that's something that you do see in Attica as well, and when I was reading the book, that... That as soon as they become prisoners they're sort of lost in the system and they don't it's like they're no longer worthy of being given a shower or toilet paper or a phone call to their families that kind of thing so I think the one massive mistake that the writers made in this situation is that they made the people in Sanctuary just homeless, poor people you know and obviously people who are mentally ill and stuff and the ghosts are an example of violent members of that community that community but they didn't make them convicted criminals and I understand why they didn't do that because they're trying to show a wider section of society they're supposed to be like it's supposed to be like a hundred thousand people in sanctuary or something right it's supposed to be a huge number of people but I think there's something about people being convicted criminals that really challenges people's ability to feel empathy because Nobody wants violent offenders in society, you know. And when people commit crimes, you do feel like they make a choice to commit a crime. Although I would argue in lots of cases, people are forced into criminal activities through several different ways. Uh, but that's a wider, that's a bigger podcast. That's a wider discussion. So people tend to struggle to feel empathy when it comes to convicted felons or comes to prisoners, people in prison, criminals. Uh, Or people who have been classed as criminals, you know. And I think it takes a level of imagination to be able to argue that people who have committed crimes, sometimes severe crimes to be treated like human beings and to be treated well you know there's lots of argument when people talk about prison reform there's always this debate either side you know like we don't want prison to be too comfortable and then there's other people who are like well but no we, we, we want prison to rehabilitate people we want them to to become better members of society after they've left prison and this is the way to do it but then we also want to punish them for their crimes and it, prison should be a punishment and there's all this idea that p- Prison is a deterrent, which obviously it doesn't seem to be a deterrent, especially not in the US, because there's a huge number of people who are incarcerated in the US. So it's obviously not that much of a deterrent, is it? And I guess it's a deterrent to a certain point and then it levels out and then it ceases to become a deterrent after that. So I think you're really challenging the audience if you make the people in sanctuary, um, convicted criminals or you make them dangerous. And I think the, 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 the guy with the hat, I think, BC. I think he is the character that challenges the audience's sympathies. And you think, well, BC's violent. But actually, at the end of it, I did feel sympathetic for him because he didn't deserve to be gunned down like that. He's killed almost instantly. Like he can barely even open his mouth. You know, he can't even actually say anything before he's completely shot to death. And also, he's also living in a terrible situation. And, you know, we don't really know all details of his story obviously he's violent and he's aggressive and he's, you know, beating people up and he scares people with a gun and he doesn't seem to have a level of empathy, but you have to be able to look beyond that. And you have to be able to see that this person is a human being. And even if they are a very violent offender, they, yeah. they shouldn't be treated like an animal. Do you know what I mean?
0: They're still a human being. Absolutely. Yeah, no, no, certainly that's, that's true.
1: And I think that's something that people lost during the Ataka uprising is regardless of whether these individuals in the prison had committed major crimes or minor crimes or they were imprisoned for minor offenses they were treated worse than animals by the end of it they were living in such terrible conditions mm. and they were massacred when they tried to speak up that it doesn't matter what crime they committed we're talking about human rights abuse you know so and how we treat our criminals is almost kind of a sign of what kind of society we are And that's the kind of the sort of message of past tense is basically Cisco is saying that things have to get worse before they get better. But this Mm. is a sign of what humanity used to be like. And if we want to be better, then we've got to treat the sort of most unsavory aspects of our society better. Does that make sense? I mean, not that homeless people are unsavory, but (laughs) I just think that if, if they'd been less likable characters, it would have been harder to sympathise with them but more challenging.
0: Maybe that's true. And and I take your point um, that obviously there is a difference between a story about a a group of prisoners and a group of homeless people. At the same time, I sort of feel like in both those situations, you have some of these same ideas about kind of not really seeing the real person. And And there is a definite... In past tense, there's a very strong desire to categorise the prisoners into different types, you know, the dims, the gimmies, the ghosts, etc. You know, and to some extent, that was true of the Attica uprising as well in that, you know, there were the prisoners who were behaving well, who were looking after the hostages, who were kind of being... You, you know kind of doing things by the book almost uh, of kind of political change then there were the ones who were making the most of things you know there were people you know prisoners raping prisoners things like that awful uh, crimes going on that's more like kind of the ghosts kind of making the most of the situation and so on but I suppose part of what we see in past tense is this idea of kind of not seeing the real person and you know and you see that on the bureaucratic level with the woman who's kind of categorising different people and, and, and you know they get treated differently and at one point she says to Cisco and Bashir, oh if I'd realised that you were gimme's Uh, I just treated you differently. You, you, you know. So there's this kind of idea that everyone goes in their own sort of particular box and you really don't treat the people as individuals. You really don't see them as kind of who they are. And I think one area where, you know, in our own society, prisoners and the homeless, you know, do have something in common in that there is this kind of sense of, oh, well, they're not like me. There's this sense of, you know, that's someone and I'm not necessarily really engaging with them as a human being. I kind of can sort of put them in a box somehow and you know I think one of the things that scares people about homelessness and the kind of homeless crisis is as as, as people often say you know you're only half many steps away from uh, becoming homeless yourself you know unless you have large amount of wealth to fall back on. If you're if you're kind of living just about within your means or whatever, you lose your job, your relationship breaks down, whatever it is, you know, homelessness is something that can potentially happen, I was going to say to anyone, maybe not to anyone, but to, to many of us and, and something that we don't want to think about. But maybe it helps to recognise that everyone living, you know, every person living on the street, every homeless person had a life before that, you know, they, they've had a story that's that's brought them to that situation. And And funnily enough, the thing that I felt watching this episode, so uh this week that w- what struck me about it was the the image that I couldn't keep getting out of my mind with the refugee camps in Calais another situation where you have people who are you know may not have been all that different from us in their in their previous life when they had a kind of normal life but you know whatever circumstances war whatever is going on in the world has forced them into this situation they've become refugees they've become these kind of destitute people and we almost don't treat them as kind of as real people. We, we do have that kind of failure of empathy to think, actually, that could be us. You know, these people are as, um, you know, they have as much right to exist and as much right to human rights and to a, a, a kind of acceptable standard of life as we do. And I think with all these situations, yes, maybe there's more sympathy for the homeless than there is for Hardened criminals, and that's true. And obviously, if they had chosen to set the whole story in a prison, maybe they would have come up against that kind of lack of sympathy and lack of identification on the part of the viewer. But at the same time, one of the things I think is interesting is because it's not just a storyline in past tense that's about homelessness, as it is now. It's about a society, and that's why it is in the in the near future, a society that's suffering an employment like absolutely uh, unprecedented employment crisis so they you know they keep saying there are no jobs there are no jobs and these are people you know and we keep being told the kind of you know the work that they were doing before they found their way into this situation so there is this sense that you know you've got the kind of hardworking family man and his family who've ended up in the sanctuary district you've got this sense of people who you know maybe only a couple of years before might have been living sort of quite normal lives and they found themselves thrown into that and you're kind of but part of the key in past sense of resolving the situation is, is this idea of giving testimony, giving these testimonials. And in the case of the Attica uprising, that the key is about sort of trying to let the truth come out rather than the lies and trying to get to the bottom of that, which is one reason that book Blood in the Water is such an amazing piece of work because she has sort of pieced together the narrative of what really happened in a way, despite the state trying to block her from doing that in various ways. In past tense, it's all about these kind of individual person uh, personal testimonials. Okay, I was mechanic and I and I did this job and so on, and then this happened to me, and that's how I ended up in the sanctuary district. I I came from this background. This is you know individuals telling their stories and basically forcing those people watching the TV or whatever to say, yeah, that that's a human being like me. That's someone who had a life like I do, and they've found themselves in this appalling situation. And I suppose what happens with Jadzia and Sisko uh, and bashir as as well kind of emphasizes the it, it emphasizes the element of chance i mean as much as it is coded in terms of this sort of racial thing and and you know yes she 's treated better because she 's an attractive white woman and so on there 's also quite an element of chance that this rich guy happens to wander along at the right time and kind of rescues her and throughout those episodes, we see you know, the side of these two worlds and how different they are. And you can see why they build walls around the sanctuary because the sanctuary is is a squalid ghetto uh, and the the world of the kind of upper classes is very refined and, and almost sort of decadent if you look at the way they're kind of dressed. They've got feathers in their hairs and all this sort of thing. And one of the things that struck me actually reading the book Blood in the Water is Attica Prison. You know, you were talking about this being in New York State where some of your family are from immediately outside this horrific, you know, wretched kind of awful squalid environment is this kind of beautiful, bucolic, uh, natural scenery of New York State. You know, this stunning natural beauty just outside the walls of this uh, prison. And absolutely, again, that sort of idea of these two worlds and kind of stark contrast between those who live on one side of the wall and those who live on the other.
1: Yeah, and I think also it's the sort of narrative of the of the the establishment and and the officials and i think that uh, there was a lot of people in attica who were um members of or members or associated with or interested in the black power movement or interested in um the civil rights movement interested in uh sort of left wing politics and the establishment at the time didn't want any of that and so they were they saw that as one of the biggest threats to them um they actually saw race as one of the biggest threats to the establishment even more than say for instance a war and so a lot i think a lot of the fear that people outside the prison just people living in the towns near the prison felt was stuff that they'd been fed it's not even it's not even a lack of empathy sometimes it can just actually be they're being fed the wrong information i think that's kind of exp- expressed in Past tense. When Jadzia confronts her friend, you know the guy who rescues her, when she sort of starts really confronting him, he he sort of he, he sort of acknowledges it. Like he he does actually help her in the end, and it, 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 maybe he knows the truth of what goes on in Sanctuary, and he's just a heartless, heartless, unkind person, or maybe he's just been fed propaganda, and that he just constantly is being fed the wrong story and he's being shown one particular narrative and he doesn't really either have the imagination or the will to look beyond that. But it's not necessarily that he's an unfeeling, unpleasant person. Do you see what I'm saying? And one of the things that really struck me as interesting is that it isn't just about putting homeless people in ghettos it's the culture of their entire society the fact that one woman was complaining that her trip to the alps had been ruined because of um protests and student student protests in france and that sort of set warning about ba- warning bells in my head like they're not willing to respect the right to protest you know and the, and also i was wondering like how could students like ruin the Alps like were they like were they like students in the mountains preventing people from ski- skiing or something with placards you know and then there's another moment where they're talking about seafloor mining and I think that's I I I would I would hazard a guess that that's a hint to bad environmental practices you know, like because because why put it in there unless because they were sort of talking about how something had been halted, but now they've started seafloor mining again, and I was thinking, oh, oh, they're ruining the planet as well, you know, which is something you would you would find the Federation, you know, would not do, you know, they want to care for the planet they would try and keep the ecosystem alive that kind of thing so
0: well then also absolutely you know this there's this line europe's falling apart that i mean you know watching this episode this is one of those episodes of deep space nine where you know you watch it in the 1990s and you think oh this this is interesting science fiction and then you watch it you know 20 years later and and you realize it's only we're what six years off the date when this is set to take place and you start thinking actually you know uh, you're are a, we getting you're further away from this future or or closer to it? Exactly. You know, because our, our kind of political unions and, and things like that are falling apart. We are becoming more fractured. And I do think there's also an interesting kind of question. You know, Cisco keeps saying it will get better. You know, they will learn to care again. People will uh, learn to see each other as human beings. They will learn to look after each other again. Um, and obviously, you know, in our in our own history, this is the kind of... What it feels like is what we saw in the aftermath of World War II when, you you know, people did come together, you know, particularly say here in Britain, we had the formation of the welfare state, the National Health Service, you, you know, this sort of idea of social kind of positive social change where as a society, we look out for each other. We look after those who are less fortunate for whatever reason. Um, and bit by bit, as time has moved on, and particularly in the last few years, it seems like we're kind of chipping away at all that and becoming much more kind of, uh, sort of survival of the fittest and more sort of Individualistic, and so on. It feels to me very much like we're going through the kind of, you know, if these things are cyclical, the kind of bit of the cycle that is sort of what we're seeing in past tense. You know, maybe maybe not to quite the same extreme, but you know, definitely that kind of sense of we, we seem to have forgotten slightly how to care about other people, and, and that's why I bring up you know the the refugees in Calais or whatever, because again, I think it's the same kind of thing. We we're we're losing our empathy for those who are suffering in the world. And, and it's interesting, the thing that Cisco, when they're asked what are their demands, um, the thing that he says is we want the reinstatement of the Federal Employment Act. The Federal Employment Act was a real act of 1946 in America. Uh, so, you, you know, again, kind of harking back to exactly that kind of post war moment when the world had kind of come, you know, gone to the brink and kind of come through something together. And for however long it lasted, there was a kind of, mood of trying to band together and kind of help each other somehow and, and over the successive decades and certainly in the last few years it does sort of feel you know as the person says Europe's falling apart well we are falling apart and we're falling apart because we're not we're not sticking together you know we're we're, we're, we're exiting we're we're saying you know it's nothing to do with us when you know we'll go our own way and and that is the way towards the kind of society that you see in these episodes.
1: Yeah I I, I would be interested to see some of this stuff in like the present federation time do you know what I mean so I mean it's Mm. very hard to do time travel episodes in any kind of television because it's very hard to do them well because the past tense or the past tense, tense. the past is static. um, And so it's hard to generate Mm. dramatic tension with something that has actually happened and been established. But I think Star Trek does it particularly well, and I think they've done it well in many, many episodes. And I think they've explored poverty and um, oppression in other episodes as well, where people have gone back in time. I'm thinking of, like, City on on the Edge of Forever and that kind of thing. But... I would be interested to see an episode sent, set in current federation time where we do see something like a prison because there are other there are other i guess you, i guess we see stuff to do with like other species like Cardassian prisons. Green prisons, and I guess we saw the one, the Dominion prison, didn't we? At one point, and in Discovery, there is you know that sort of impoverished community on the Klingon homeworld, where the Burnham sort of says, you know, this isn't my type of community, these aren't my people, but this is somebody's home. Like this is a home, and it's 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 interesting that she can actually see that and she can empathize with. Uh, like a, a, a you know a settlement of people that are completely different than her and have made different choices or haven't had any choices to make because I think uh, what what you're saying and what we're kind of saying in this episode and what we both agree on is that some people just don't have choices and so you know a lot of the time we ascribe blame you know this person's in prison because they made this choice or this person's homeless because they made this choice but actually in a lot of cases people are pushed to the very limit and they aren't actually making choices these are the only thing only actions or avenues available to them um in desperate circumstances so i'd be interested to see a modern federation prison because there must be a situation or um some situation where people have to be put somewhere in the Federation. Like, we know the Earth doesn't have any of these sanctuaries anymore, you know. We know the Earth is basically a paradise, a utopia. But what about, you know, other colonies on other planets? I mean, I I find it really hard to to believe that there's not poverty anywhere in the Federation amongst humans. And at one point in the past tense, in the first episode, past tense one, Julian does actually... Make the comparison like between sanctuary and the the um, Romulans and the Cardassians, almost like you can't believe humans could treat other humans this cruelly. Like humans could be so unkind, and they could come up with such a bad system as basically ghettos for poor people. And this is something that only Cardassians and Romulans could do, which I thought was really funny because, you know, I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of good Romulans who campaign for. Reform, and there's probably well, we know we know there are good Cardassians. Do you know what I mean? Who don't who don't approve of this? So it's 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 the fact that he can't see that Cardassians, individual Cardassians, individual Romulans are also stuck in a system that isn't necessarily always of their own making. That was like a very a very us and them kind of mentality, which sort of shocked me a bit. And obviously later on, towards the end of the episodes, he's he's obviously changed, but.
0: I think it's a really key episode for Bashir as a character as well, because it is, you know, in the early seasons of DS9, Bashir is this quite irritating, uh, very sort of wet behind the ears, young guy. And, And we see in past tense as well, he goes into the story very naive about it. Like you say, he's kind of, you know, making comments like that. On the other hand, you could say that really what he's pointing out to the viewer is that what they're doing in past tense, I think for the first time ever in Star Trek, is really turning the lens that is normally put on the alien societies. I mean, if you think of the original series, uh, the Federation is great. Kirk and his crew are great. You know, there's no problems with them, but they go to these planets where awful practices are going on. There's inequality. There's kind of backward religion. There's, you know, all this kind of social ills of one kind or another. And they go in and tell them, yeah, you're doing that wrong, you, you, you know. Uh, sort yourselves out we'll smash the computer destroy the fake <laughs> god we'll you know we'll kind of interfere and, and and obviously in next gen it's a bit more modulated by the prime directive and a slightly different approach but traditionally star trek has looked to aliens to show these kind of darker sides of you know for want of a better word human nature whether that's the cardassians or the romulans or whatever ds9 is doing something quite radical in a way from Star Trek's point of view, by setting this storyline. This is not some alien planet that they've ended up on. I mean, you could almost tell a lot of this. You could tell schematically the whole story and it just be, there'd be no time travel and this be they've got mistaken for locals on some alien planet where they have this sort of backward system and how are they going to get out and are they going to survive what happens because they get caught up in the middle of a riot. But what they choose to do is set it on Earth, set it, you, you know, and also not in the real past of Earth, but in this kind of imagined future, which, you know, as far as Star Trek's concerned, the future is great. The future of Earth is is optimistic and wonderful. And here we see that, you know, to get to that point, um, I, I know we knew that there was going to be a third world war in there so, somewhere, so it wasn't all going to be rosy and wonderful. But I feel like this is the first time that we've actually been to this dystopian Earth, really, that that we have to get through before we get to the kind of utopian future of the Federation. And I mean in some ways Bashir can seem very naive in that episode on the other hand his naivety kind of makes sense given that you know he hasn't really studied his history which maybe he should have done maybe there should be Doing a bit more of that at Starfleet Academy, but you know we know he's this guy who he wanted to. He, he went to Deep Space Nine because he wanted to practice whatever he calls it. I was going to say Front, medicine, frontier you medicine, out know, in the sort of out in the sticks, frontier medicine. That yeah, of course, final frontier medicine. Yeah, that's what he wanted to do. You know, and there there was this kind of quite um, naive approach to that. At the same time, he does sort of want to get stuck into it. And I think what we see in this episode is he grows a lot as a character and he starts to become the Bashir that we. You know, get to know throughout the rest of DS9, and and loses some of that kind of initial um, slightly irritating naivety in a way, and, and you know becomes a bit more grounded and a, a bit more of a kind of not that he wasn't compassionate before because he was a decent doctor and so on, but I feel like his his compassion seems to grow deeper, and you you sort of feel like season seven Bashir would be a much better doctor than season one Bashir just because of the way that he interacts with other people and, and his kind of um his his sort of world view seems to have, have gradually changed and, and he's become a more sympathetic character in a way, partly through recognising that the world is not as simplistic as he thought. Yeah, I
1: mean it was. he's not a compact it's not that he's not compassionate, it's that he's naive, I think, more than anything. Mm. Like mm. he's definitely a compassionate person. Like he's outraged by what's going on. And you yeah. couldn't be like yeah, yeah, outraged yeah, no, unless you were compassionate, really, could you? So um he's obviously an empathic person. It's just that he's sort of like, Why would anyone come up with this system? Like, why would anyone put these people in this 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 place? You know? It just seems alien to him. But I think there's also a reason for that as well, which is to show that what a utopia the Federation is, like or the or, or how wonderful Earth is, because this is a man who' grown up who's grown up on Earth, who's gone through like, I suppose, I would hope, the brilliant education systems they have in his time, and also, you know, has basically lived a very comfortable, safe life and gone to Starfleet and all that kind of thing. and I think it's supposed to show that he's naive because he's not read the history, like Cisco. But he's also naive because he has had a very comfortable, wonderful life, which is nice. You know, I mean, it shows how, how wonderful the Federation is. What I was trying to figure out, though, was how this history fits in with the other Star Trek history. Because when you watch First Contact, Picard talks about how um, First Contact with the Vulcans is what propels the human race into an era of peace of prosperity and basically wider thinking of in terms of how to eradicate poverty and get rid of money and all that kind of stuff and first contact they're all sort of living in poverty i guess (laughs) um and they all kind of are kind of semi-homeless aren't they because of a world war and and a a nuclear fallout or something like that some sort of weapons fallout uh so does this all come after the bell riots it does, doesn't it? So what we're, we're yeah. actually supposed to think things yeah, are going to yeah. get worse. So actually, the ending of Past Tense 2 isn't actually <laughs> as positive as you think it is, because things are going to get worse. Because they might get better for a time in San Francisco, because people will get rid of Sanctuary, and they will start giving people mm. work. But then there's going to be a world war, and like millions of people are going to die. And then the Vulcans are going to connect with us, and then we're all going to start making things better. And then the... Is it the Zindi who are going to like destroy half of florida and then do you know i mean like (laughs) we've got a lot of death before we're getting to deep space nine and then there's a lot of death in deep space nine so is this really as utopian as we think it is
0: (laughs) well i mean this is certainly uh, you know this is probably not star trek at its most utopian and you know arguably deep space nine is not star trek at its most utopian either but i think it is interesting that they kind of um that that they kind of go there, and that they that they, they, they I, I feel like the the society in past tense probably feels more fully realised even than. I mean, I think First Contact's a great film, and, and I think it feels perfectly real that kind of post World War Three situation. On the other hand, it's kind of easy doing the post situation. Maybe is a bit easier because it's kind of we haven't had it a Star Trek storyline where they take us into the middle of World War Three, or into the middle of the Eugenics Wars or into the middle of one of these kind of big global historical events. They've been quite localised in a sense. So First Contact is really just in that one particular sort of encampment in Montana that really the story is taking place. What I think is great about this episode is it does feel like it operates on a slightly bigger scale. I mean, maybe it's not even the entire United States. Maybe it's just kind of San Francisco... I suppose the governor who is talked about and is remains off screen is the governor of California. Um, you, you know, so you've kind of got at least on the state level, uh, you, you've got that kind of sense of the, the players and what's going on and the kind of, I don't know, the sort of social and political reality of it. And I guess because we do see the world outside the sanctuary districts as well that jadzia is inhabiting we kind of get glimpses of that as well I, i feel like it it presents what seems like a very real society actually more so than sometimes we get in star trek where it can seem a little bit kind of paint by numbers when you have these kind of alien societies with their their social ills and they're going to be fixed in the space of 45 minutes and albeit of course in this situation we've got uh 90 minutes instead, so, you know, we've got twice as long. But I guess also, one of the things, just thinking about these kind of two worlds and and the way that it, it presents both sides of it, is I think it's kind of interesting the way that Jadzia is not only in the wealthy world by virtue of you know, of her appearance and and of good luck and and so on. And and Sisko and Bashir are in the other world. But Jadzia is actually able to pass between the two worlds, which is kind of interesting. So, you know, and and we find out this is because she's willing to traipse through the sewers, which the guy in the hat can scarcely believe she'd be uh, prepared to do. But at the same time, she she occupies this position where she has the kind of agency and the power to kind of cross that boundary in a way. And it made me think a little bit, you know, thinking about Attica, about the observers who were sent into Attica, because one of the things that I suppose is surprising about the Attica story in some ways, given that it did end in this absolute bloodbath and this horrific massacre when they, they took a kind of, um, I was going to say military, I don't think, I think military sort of dignifies it in a way, but, you, you know, a, an armed approach to kind of retaking the prison, is that there was actually quite a lengthy negotiation process going on, just as there is in past tense. You know, you've got that policewoman, the police commissioner or whatever she is, who's kind of negotiating with them and saying, well, you know, I can try and get you these charges reduced, but I don't think the governor's going to agree to, to, to the demands that you're making. And equally in Attica, there was this process of kind of demands going back and forth. And there were these observers who were brought in. And interestingly, the observers knew when the prison was about to be stormed and taken by force, but they were sufficiently kind of allied with the prisoners by that point and sufficiently on board with them that they elected to stay and, you know, risk their own lives in a sense uh, to be there with them, which of course is exactly what we see in past tense in some ways Bashir and uh cisco are doing i mean not to some extent they're stuck there they don't have a huge amount of choice but they do kind of make the decision well certainly towards the end they make the decision because jadzia says you know you can come back with me we can beam out we can go back to the 24th century or whatever uh cisco says no i have to stay here and obviously we know he has to because he has to you know, right the wrongs of history, do the kind of Sam Beckett thing and, and, uh, uh, you know, be Gabriel Bell for this moment so that, so that history doesn't go off on its, its wrong course that, that they've set into motion when Bell was killed. But Bashir says, you know, I'm going to stay behind as well. I'm going to, I'm going to be here too. And he knows that this is a very dangerous situation. He could get killed, but he's kind of, he, he wants to be there, not just to support Cisco and to support history, but also kind of, I, I suppose to be, you know, part of it and to provide the medical care to those people in that building and so on, you know, so there is that sense again of kind of these people who are, are able to almost see. You no, know, not just to see both sides of it, but I suppose you get that with with Bashir. I mean, Cisco goes in knowing the whole history of all of this. Bashir has to kind of learn it and he learns it from the beginning. You know, their first experience when they get there, uh, insofar as this is a story not about prisoners, but about homeless people and about, you know, people with no jobs and so on. Uh Cisco and Bashir end up homeless. They actually sleep on the street that first night. You know, he's kind of thrown right into the middle of it, thrown into this experience, learns firsthand what it feels like to be treated like this what it feels like to be processed by someone who doesn't value him as a person by people who laugh at the idea that he might be a doctor because you know how could a doctor have ended up in there so so it is a real kind of lesson in empathy i suppose for him and you know i know you were saying yeah he's a doctor he he is empathic beforehand but so maybe empathy is the wrong word but but in, in in like really listening i suppose that's what it comes down to it's like really kind of taking it on board and and hearing what these people are going through and learning something from it and and coming to a place of real understanding and I think that's what you get from Bashir in the course of that episode. Yeah
1: and I think that's what you, well I say, I, th- I think that's what people need to do when it comes to the prison system and I think that's what needed to happen with Attica and I think sadly the, I mean it was one of the first prison uprisings that were, was actually videoed and so that so the, there were people being heard outside of the prison, The messages were getting across in certain respects because they were being um, videoed for television and there were journalists that went in and interviewed them and stuff during the uprising and like you know like you said there were um, objective observers who went in and spoke to them and negotiated with them and brought the demands back and forth you know to the to the state officials and stuff but in terms of real change to the U.S. prison system I mean there have been changes I some you know I mean not all prisons in the U.S. have the conditions that like existed in Attica but there's a major major problem with the widespread incarceration of individuals in the US and you know even just in the UK there's been scandals in recent years about people being held asylum seekers being held in bad conditions in detention centres in the UK and I'm sure it's happened across other countries in Europe as well and you know it's definitely there's definitely been human rights abuses in you know, the refugee camp in Calais, definitely with police going in and removing people and mistreating people. And, and I think one of the things I liked about the book, Blood and the Water was that she did interview and she did put across the point of view of the uh, prison officials as, but also a lot of the hostages, but also a lot of the prison guards as well. I mean, she is, uh, I would say that Heather Ann Thompson is more sympathetic to the prisoners than um, perhaps maybe other historians have been in the past when they've written about the uprising and i myself um very sympathetic to people who are incarcerated especially people who are incarcerated in the u.s prison system because i think it is a prison it is a prison system that i think is kept kept populated for financial gain i think that a lot of there's a lot of money to be made in the prison system in the US, partly because of private contracts and all sorts of stuff. So, you know, if you're going to make money from a prison, you want to keep it populated. What do you do? You basically have to fill it with people who are arrested for whatever crime. And sometimes they are quite minor crimes, like you said. So Heather Ann Thompson. So it, in a way, the book did speak to me because of that. I didn't ever imagine that the uprising was going to be that horrific and that the retaking of the prison was going to be as barbaric as it was. And as like graphic as well but I felt that um, she did try and give the prison guards a voice and even though there were prison guards who did approve of some of the beatings there were also prison guards who expressed dismay at the abuse that went on like for weeks and weeks after the uprising there were people who said well I could see them beating the prisoners like directly after the uprising I don't agree with that but some people could see that happening. And they, but then they were like, but I couldn't see them continually beating the prisoners like weeks afterwards. And some of the pr- prison guards were sort of saying, you know, I was not trained in this job and I was constantly warning my superiors that the prisoners didn't have enough space to move and that their cells were freezing or that their cells were boiling. Or I could see that the prisoners were stressed. I could try, I could see that this was happening, that was happening. So, I think that there had to be a certain level of empathy from some of the prison guards in order to understand how these prisoners felt not in the same way as Bashir obviously because Bashir isn't keeping these homeless people in sanctuary whereas prison guards are keeping prisoners in prison you know that's their job but it, there was I think there was a level of naivety like from some of the state officials from some of the objective observers you know from some of the prison guards uh, that was completely and utterly destroyed by the uprising and also by the massacre that happened afterwards when they retook the prison. I think that people didn't... Some people probably knew it was going to be bad, but a lot of people didn't. And when they truly found out how awful it was and how how many violent acts of murder were committed, I think even people who had previously supported the prison system, you know, and had, like... Been very un- uh, upha- unhappy about the uprising. I think even they started to question, like, the state's motives. You know, like, what's, <laughs> like, why, why did this happen? Like, why did you give a whole bunch of men, um, weapons that were not registered to them? Why did these, these, these troopers and guards take off their badges and identifying, you know, equipment? And, and why did they go in there in a complete unorganised way there was no sign giving to them about who should start shooting and when they should start stop shooting there was no like cohesive plan about how they were going to retake the prison they basically went in and just went crazy
0: yeah and it was absolutely you know for many of them a kind of you know this sort of venge-filled you know sort of vigilante approach you know they were they weren't really going in there as Representatives of the state, or as representatives of law and order, they were going in there to kind of punish these uh, people who they they felt had kind of overstepped the mark, who'd kind of you know wouldn't stay in their place in a way, and also because you know there had been obviously guards had been hurt, and one guard had been killed in the in the uh, uprising. I can't remember if he was already dead. By yeah, this point I think or in, the, I in, think in maybe, the initial in the initial uprising, he was, yeah. Yeah. So there was th- so there was this definite. Um, motivation of revenge for a lot of them and and you know and some of them knew some of the people who were were hostages some of the guards who'd ended up as hostages but at the same time there was this just murderous impulse I mean there's horrific stories in that book you know one guy who said um who I think was a, a hostage who who said a, a trooper came in and and killed one person and and then threw him a knife or something and said, here, you you kill the other guy. And he was like, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna kill him. You know, we don't we don't need to kill him. Is you know, it was clear things were under control by them, and this guy was getting him to try trying to get him to participate in this. Another story of a black uh prisoner, I think, who one of the troopers who came in told him, You're gonna die now because we haven't killed enough niggers yet today. And that was the, you know, and that was the message that was and that was the truth behind a lot of what was going on in there was this kind of just racial uh, hatred, really, and this desire for kind of racial war, really, is what was going on on one level, you know, going in there with these guns and these weapons and feeling like anyone, you know, any one of those prisoners was kind of a legitimate target, whether they were, whether you were in any danger from them personally or not, whether the, the prison was actually secure already or not, that it was kind of You know, sort of no holds barred by that point. It was, it was kind of legitimate to go in there and murder these people essentially was, was clearly what a lot of these troopers felt at that time and the fact that immediately afterwards they were spinning these lies and they were kind of getting away with it and there was you know and there was this real there is this kind of real fog of war about it about you know who did what who who did kill whom and and um you know is it ever possible to to pin anything on anyone on either side whether to pin anything on the troopers or equally as they found when they were trying to prosecute the you know the ringleaders or whatever it was very difficult to pin anything on anyone then and they resorted to basically fabricating all the evidence that they needed and and bribing and um, threatening witnesses and so on to in order to construct a kind of coherent case because again on that side as well it was all you know such a kind of murky chaotic mess but I
1: think I think like what you were saying was that Bashir learned this he lost his naivety, but he 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 learned this sort of empathy that perhaps maybe hadn't existed before. And I think there are cases in the book of people actually having that same experience. That there are cases of hostages sort of seeing the prisoners as human beings who who want human rights for the first time you know rather than seeing them as uh, as 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 objects being processed through a system or just or or people just being housed in a prison and i think that that's kind of what we need to start doing with prisoners in our current society now Uh, and and i think uh, i mean like you say we also need to start doing with homeless people with refugees with asylum seekers but I think it's easier perhaps to do it with refugees um, and asylum seekers because they seem very much like victims of war or um, uh, of, of, of persecution or of some dire economic situation. Uh, maybe it's also slightly easier because you said with homeless people, you know, this situation has, has resulted in them and them becoming homeless. It's not a choice they've made, and you, you know, people, anybody could become homeless. Like you said, we're not. None of us are too far away from homelessness. It's much harder with people who are in prison because prison is so hidden away. And I, you know, I suppose the same with asylum seekers and refugees, but there has been a lot of press coverage of, um, for all the good it's actually done in changing people's minds. But there has actually been press coverage, you know, um, of, of, you know, the refugee crisis in Europe and there has been pictures of refugees and in the news. And I would have hoped that, you know the, the press coverage of asylum seekers, you know, in the Mexico-U.S. border would have ha- like really changed people's minds in the U.S. And I think it has changed a lot of people's minds. You know, the separation of families. But in terms of in terms of what goes on behind a prison prison wall, and that's kind of why sanctuary is important in past tense is because it's behind walls. You know what what goes on behind a wall? You know what goes on hidden, where there aren't necessarily always cameras and there isn't a huge amount of coverage. And although there's been a lot of books and documentaries made about the prison system in the US, even in the last four or five years, before that, from 1971, there's been a lot of history. There's been a lot of presidents and they've passed a lot of prison reform and and, and, and criminal law. And it's actually just resulted in more people being in prison you know, I mean, the prison population in the US is insane compared to what it was in 1971. So something's going...
0: Something like a quarter quarter of the people in prison in the world are in prison yeah. in America, right? I mean, it is a huge... And there is, as you said, a huge industry and there is a huge... You know, prisoners are working and they're generating money and there is a kind of... Uh, a sort of economy uh, in play there as well. One of the things that just crossed my mind when, we, when you were talking about homeless people or refugees or whatever, all these kind of categories of people that maybe. Where there's a kind of barrier to empathy the other thing actually that struck me watching past tense this week, partly because we recently recorded our episodes uh about mental health in Star Trek, is the treatment of mental illness in these episodes and the fact that there are these kind of mentally ill characters sort of wandering around, you know suffering from severe schizophrenia and so on and it's kind of interesting the the Starfleet characters I think you know both um what well, Dax, for example, has those kind of interactions with the character. Played by Clint Howard, who, who uh, thinks, you, you know, is, is paranoid about aliens coming and, and sucking his brain out or something. Uh, and the way that she deals with him seems very kind of uh sort of compassionate and kind do you know what I mean like she has a very it seems like a very sort of benign interaction she sort of wins his trust Bashir is kind of saying this is terrible the way that mental illness is is not being treated here you know there are medications available for these people they could be looked after this is a sort of humanitarian uh kind of crisis but the other thing in a way which is almost the flip side of the kind of you know what goes on behind the walls argument is what it made me think of is you know care the idea of care in the community that we have in the uk you know in the uk we used to have asylums uh institutions basically for severely mentally ill people where they would be you know would be kind of kept behind closed doors and and you know and there were many appalling stories about things that happened in those asylums but at the same time then at a certain point there was this idea of care in the community kind of releasing people back into the community and they're sort of you know local GP and maybe a mental health team would be keeping an eye on them. And often that has been a catastrophic failure because, you know, these are people who require really a great deal of care and they just get lost in the system. They just get ignored. They get, you you know, the professionals who are supposedly responsible for their well-being have no idea what's going on, have no idea whether they're taking their medication or not, have no idea, you know, what kind of, um, you know, if they are someone who's I don't know, schizophrenic or, or, you know, something like that, and and maybe has paranoid delusions about what's going on around them or that they're being persecuted by their co-workers or by their friends and family or whatever. You know, these people kind of fall through the net now because, precisely because of this idea of sort of, you know, supposedly letting them back into the community. But actually what that means in many cases is, you know, extremely ill people just sort of wandering around. In a way that, you know, is, is often not safe for them aside from, you know, any potential dangers to anyone else. And it kind of, it kind of struck me watching these episodes, you know, that, that that is another kind of strand in there that, you know, and obviously there's a kind of, intersection between a lot of these issues you know an intersection between mental illness and homelessness an intersection between homelessness uh, and and race probably certainly an intersection between race and prison populations and so on you know a lot lot of these kind of things are connected in one way or another but it just struck me that's another strand that the episode has in there is this kind of compassion for the not just the people who are able to stand up and and riot and say we demand our rights and so on, but these other people who seem to be in that sanctuary district who, you you know, cannot represent themselves at all because of the state that they're in. Um, And, and, you know, really someone, as Bashir says, should be looking after
1: them. Yeah, and I I would question how much um, money it costs to run sanctuary. I mean, you do see some officials, but you don't actually see that many. And the real wealth that we see in that sort of um, few episodes is connected to the sort of fancy buildings uh, that Jedzia finds herself in, you know, the sort of offices and the businesses um, of the sort of, I would say, I guess, upper classes you know, the like upper echelons of that hierarchy, that social hierarchy I, I, I feel a little bit like I mean, it's not ever explicitly said, but I feel a little bit like San Francisco, the city of San Francisco is, um, saving money by putting all these poor people and mentally, mentally ill people, um, in, into sanctuary. I, th- I feel like it's, it's, it's proving to be cheaper for them to just corral them into these big ghettos and then f- feed them the bare minimum of food and then kind of just leave them there. And it would cost more money.
0: And not even, not even give not them even real give housing. housing. I yeah. mean, you know, they are literally they're expected to, and they they keep saying how overcrowded the sanctuary districts are. You know, there 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 aren't enough beds. There aren't even. There's not even enough floor space for everyone who needs to sleep there. Uh You know, you see people are sleeping in tents in the in the middle of the street, and it's not. I mean, it's not i think interesting one thing that struck me actually watching this episode and reading about Atticus, is they both take place in september i think uh which i'm sure must have been deliberate because they talk about the date in the past tense episode but you know it's it, it it's not january or whatever but you know when the weather gets cold and it, it can get pretty cold in san francisco i think um that environment is going to become even more inhospitable and as it is it looks you know Pretty unpleasant and pretty inhospitable, uh, you know, just from the kind of clothes that people are wearing and so on. You know, there is a real and lighting fires in the street and so on. You know, people are struggling to stay warm. People are struggling to stay fed. People are struggling to stay safe when there are effectively kind of gangs uh, going around at night. You know, it's it's not it, I mean. It's it's kind of clever in a way that they this idea of calling them sanctuary districts because it's absolutely that kind of doublespeak, political kind of doublespeak. Really, they're they're anything but. They're the absolute opposite of a sanctuary. You know, they're a, they're a hellish, dangerous place to be living, especially for anyone who's you know vulnerable in any way, for families, for children, for the mentally ill uh you, you know for these people who are how how are they supposed to survive in that environment yeah
1: and, and some of those people obviously are the gimmies and the gimmies are you know are people who could actually work and do want to work but the jobs aren't available so they are in financial dire straits but some of those people are like the people you were talking about the dims and i, I really upset me that they're called dims i was like God, it's like calling somebody a retard you know like oh he, it's, she's a dim. I mean, it's just, it was like, it's really insulting. I mean, it's insulting that the ghosts are called ghosts, you know, like they're not real people, like they're just, you know, sp- spooky apparitions or something. But some of those people are the dims and the dims are probably just going to cost the state money because they maybe are too mentally ill to ever work, you know, or to ever contribute to society. Um, or to ever fit into that mould where they're going to be able to go to that fancy kind of fancy party that Jazeera goes to, and uh, make polite conversation. Although well, Bashir or, says,
0: you know, if they if they were treated, they may. Do you know what I mean? That there is treatment available for them. They're, their lives could be massively improved. Do you know what I mean? You, you, yeah, we don't. No, know that's exactly true. What but the, then you. But then you know, that's true. Their lives could be certainly better. Yeah, than they that's are, true. You know? But
1: then also, so, sometimes societies have to actually just care for people. Like I think that's part of the problem with the whole idea of people say, oh, benef- people are abusing benefits. Like some people will just never be able to work, but that's okay. They should still have good lives. Like they should still have good lives because they're human beings and they have the right to a good life. And you know, I mean, I'm kind of okay handing over my tax money. You know, you know, my taxes to support someone who maybe has such a severe mental health condition that they're never going to be able to contribute back to the system. You know, it's not necessarily that they won't be able to live a good functional life, but maybe they're going to cost the state more than they would contribute back. And, um, obviously that period in history that they're in, it capitalism is still part of it. But I think in, in utopian Star Trek, capitalism isn't as much of a i mean there is capitalism i suppose because there's quark's bar and you know the Ferengis and latinum and everything but there isn't this there isn't this concern that people who are not able to contribute as much to the system as they're going to get out of it are going to be left by the wayside you know like you you can't work so therefore you get less that doesn't seem fair if you know if you're very severely mentally ill, you know, some people should just be cared for. And that's really what we should do. So,
0: and it does, it does clearly a lot of it does come down to money, because there's that line where um, the administrator says to Cisco and Bashir at one point steer clear of security, their budget's just been cut again. You know, so there's definitely that idea that the sanctuaries are being run on a shoestring. uh, And, and you know, their budgets are being cut. So they're being run on less and less and less, even as they're getting more and more overcrowded. And clearly, they need more money, but they're kind of being run down into the ground. And they are able to do that precisely because no one knows what's going on in there no one can see what's going on they don't even have access to the internet uh or the net as they you know as they call it so so they can't even get the stories out and it's only once jadzia is able to kind of um arrange for them to have you, you know to get them online in a sense so that they can get the stories out that even the outside world can know what's happening inside there
1: so just um briefly before we we go I wanted to ask this question which is at the very end of past tense 2 the last episode Bashir does sort of ask how this happened like he's still confused like he walks in he walks into Cisco's quarters and Cisco I'm just going to say it right now but I think if you've been shot in the shoulder I don't think you should be made to sleep in a bed like the kind of bed that Cisco's lying on because The beds in the defiant look really (laughs) uncomfortable. Um, but anyway, that was just, I was just watching that as a side, side note. I was like, and it's not, it's not
0: even a Cardassian bed. They've got no excuse, you know?
1: Yeah. It just doesn't look, it doesn't, doesn't look conducive to a good night's sleep. Um, and Bashir's just like, how did this happen? And Sisko is like, I, I don't know. Like, how did this happen? And it sort of echoes a question early on in earlier on in this, in the, in the two parter where Bashir says, um, could the Federation easily slide into this kind of system? Like, could the Federation actually? Could things like you said things go in, in cycles in history? Could this actually happen in in a future Star Trek, like sort of series? Basically, could the Federation slide into this? And I wonder, do you think it could? Uh,
0: my feeling is, I hope the answer to that is no. Just because I and, and I know there have been people have suggested, you know, what's what next for Star Trek? And who knows, maybe we'll see this with the new Picard series, but, you know, what, where do we go kind of after Voyager, essentially? Um, and one of the very popular suggestions was the kind of disintegration of the Federation. You know, the Federation, this idea that uh, all sort of empires or all kind of organisations like that go through kind of periods of growth and periods of collapse, in a sense, and th- that this would be kind of the end of the Federation, like the fall of the Roman Empire or something. I sort of feel like even if you think historically that's what happens in civilizations, I'm not sure that I like the idea of Star Trek going there because I do sort of feel like on some level, maybe that isn't quite Star Trek because Star Trek is all about this future that is better. And, you know, even in past tense, which is pretty grim and is pretty dark and obviously, as we said, draws on this incredibly dark historical source material. There is hope for the future, you know, and, and Cisco keeps saying it, you know, it, it it is it is going to get better. Things are going to improve, even as you point out, there may be a third world war coming up around the corner. But, you know, in the short term, at least, things are going to improve. This social ill is going to be addressed and, and things are going to improve there. But at the same time, I think it's it's a very interesting way that that episode ends, as you say, on this kind of almost impossible question. You know, how did it get like this? Uh, how can things get that bad? Well, but the fact is, look at our society today. Things are getting worse and worse. And, you know, who knows whether we'll end up in the situation with the with the sanctuary districts or not. Although when they were writing the episode, funnily enough, um, and they didn't know this, uh, I think they were they were still at the point of maybe breaking the episode, so sort of plotting it out. They hadn't, hadn't maybe written the scenes and the dialogue and so on, but they were kind of well into working on it. And they read this thing in the paper saying the Los Angeles... Uh, you know whatever it is the 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 local city council or whatever was considering plans to set up camps for homeless people in the city so literally exactly what they projected as this kind of dystopian future thing was being tabled as a serious you know prospect in 1990 whatever this was it's easy to be complacent about some of these things and say oh we'll never go there again or we'll never go in that direction or we'll never let things get that bad but you know if you're on a slippery slope and things are getting worse and worse um I suppose that's the answer to that question in some ways. You you know, that's what happens. Yeah, I
1: I think it's the ability to look away and to not pay attention to the suffering of others is how it happens. And I think, although, you know, Cisco says, I don't know, and he, and he says it's sort of wearying, like with a weird, with a weary voice, like kind of I feel like he does kind of know. Um but, you know, he's just it just it's unfathomable how people could care so little about each other that that, you know, that this would be allowed to happen. But it has in the past. Uh will again in the future. Um I think it's 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 people turning away and not paying attention to the suffering of others, and that's how it happens. You know, you if you if you don't care about people who are in a less well off position than you, or you don't bother to try and understand or care people, care about people who seem like less desirable members of society, like people who are in prison, or perhaps maybe people who have a drug addiction, or perhaps maybe people who have a scary mental illness, then very quickly they can become the other. And the other can be put in a box away from you and they're different than you. And then very quickly, they can be put in an area away from you, like a ghetto or a prison. And then you don't have to look at them and you don't have to think about them and they're not there. Uh, and then it doesn't matter if they're suffering because you don't know, because you don't see them. So it, it, it can actually happen quite quickly. And I would say it's happening now. I would say it's happening now. It's happened to everybody in the UK because we had a refugee camp not that far from where we all live. It's just on the other side of the English Channel. And, you know, it's happening in America. So there's lots of many, many, many people incarcerated in prisons and detention centres, some of them children. So I don't think we need to imagine it as a future. I think we can imagine it happening right now because we just need to look at the news. I think in terms of widespread general population ghettos, yeah, that's a way it weighs off. But If people don't pay attention to what's going on around them, that will happen quicker than they think it will. It's like the road to tyranny is paved with inattention. You just have to, you just have to not look. And in a way, that's kind of what Star Trek is sort of saying often in lots of their episodes is, you know, and a lot of the franchise is pay attention to what is going on around you, like explore. Be inquisitive. Be curious. Be imaginative. You know.
0: Be Cisco. Be Cisco. Pay attention to your <laughs> yeah. history
1: books. Or, or be, be, ca- <laughs> be Kirk. E- even you know? even if
0: in your history even if in your history book. I mean, be it, any of uh, the it captains. It turns out that the photograph is yours <laughs> of the historical thing. Yeah. Be, yeah. be any of the captains. Yeah. No, yeah. your so, history. And, and
1: yeah, just oh. yeah.
0: be a good captain. Yeah, and know your ca- yeah,
1: exactly. And uh, well, that's our message really for everyone who's listening.
0: <laughs> mm. <laughs> Yeah. There you go. That's our, I would, you know, I would, primitive culture after school. I would special. urge people
1: to read this book if they are at all interested in, um, in, in the book that won the Pulitzer Prize for History in 2017. If they are all interested in reading a very good book, it's heavy going. So I would intersperse it with episodes of Star Trek to keep your positivity about the future alive. <laughs>
0: yeah <laughs> yeah you're gonna need yeah, that yeah. definitely definitely but it is it is well worth reading it, it I mean it is a, a fascinating and very important and and you know shocking story I'm glad that you you know like I said a couple of weeks ago you and I Clara I don't think I'd ever even heard of Attica we didn't know anything about this story and you know thanks to Deep space nine thanks to Ira Stephen bear thanks to the brilliant DS9 companion, which I'm always singing the praises of on this show. Uh, You know, we've had a chance to go and delve into a a little bit of the history of America, you know, as I say, almost within our own lifetimes, you know, not, uh, and certainly within Star Trek's lifetime and learn about a very, shocking and interesting story as a result
1: so it's been really interesting to delve into past tense one and two to look at um, systems of oppression and the um, attica uprising of 1971 but this isn't the only thing that's been discussed on the network this week so here's a look of what you might have missed elsewhere on trek fm
0: previously on trek.fm the 602 club Robert the Bruce isn't sort of one of these stories that we kinda of get told a lot really in school, and it's kinda of funny that you're talking about that you you've just read this kind of book about, you know, my first king as it essentially were. Whereas at school I spent a year learning about American history and kind of the rise to American Civil War, Civil War over. Like, there there never is much kind of conversation about kind of Scottish history out right? with certain things like the Jacobites and perhaps, you know, the classic world wars, for example. So, like it's really interesting to, to almost have this discussion. Melodic tricks. I think it's it's notes and the, the combinations that they use. So they will use dissonance, so notes that don't really clap, that, that clash and don't really go against each other. And they'll use minor and they'll use minor chords, they'll use uh, diminished chords, cause those sound, you know, the saddest, the most frightening, you know, they'll use those. So maybe Maybe an augmented chord here and there. Literary treks. Data should have been XO half a decade ago. He should have been first officer on this ship. I have
1: cost him years in his career because I didn't get out of his way because I was too comfortable because I didn't want to shake up my life because I was scared. This is why well, I'm done being scared. I'm done being comfortable. I'm taking command of the Titan. That's the moment Riker says, "I got to wake up. My life could end tomorrow." I need to do more. I need to be more.
0: Warp 5. Okay, so Frankenstein kills a couple people, mm-hmm. right? Kills an old man, kills an old woman, scares a bunch of people, goes on the run, scares some girl guides, right? <laughs> like- <laughs> yeah, some girl
1: scout guides, yep.
0: Girl scout guides, mm-hmm. takes her cookies.
1: <laughs> yeah. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favourite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest
0: episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link.
1: We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place is to join the larger conversation on the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook.
0: Just type in Babel,
1: B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should
0: come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm contact. Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture. That'll come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at TrekFM and on Facebook at facebook.com slash TrekFM.
1: Primitive Culture is brought to you by Duncan Barrett and Clara Cook. You can find Duncan Barrett on Twitter at Barrett's Books. You can find Clara
0: on Twitter at mc. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash TrekFM. That's PATREON.com ncom slash trekfm to get all the details.
1: Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us, and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm.
0: We'd like to take this opportunity to thank our associate producers here at Primitive Culture, Tony Black and Amy Nelson. Tony was one of the founders of this show, and we still keep him in the loop about what we're doing. You can find him on Twitter at at AJBlackWriter, and online, hosting about a dozen other podcasts on everything from The X-Files to classic cinema. Amy is the host of two shows on the Trek FM network, Earl Grey and The Edge, and you can find her online on Twitter at at MissAmyNelson. You're blended already.